Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, if you're a guest with us today, we're really glad you're here. Uh, my name is Drew, and we'll be opening up God's Word together right now. So if you have a Bible, please open to Daniel chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there are some um, under the seats nearby. So you can grab one of those. And it'd be helpful to have that open um, because we'll be walking through this um, carefully in our time here. So we're continuing in our series in the book of Daniel. And this book is showing us week after week how to thrive in exile. And what we mean by that is this reality that the Bible shows us and, and uh, the New Testament teaches us that Christians live in exile in this world. No matter uh, what generation or what nation or what kind of nation, our truest home is with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and the new creation to come. And so this is not our truest home. Uh, we are exiles here, yet Jesus not only calls us to himself to come home to him, but he also leaves us here to thrive. And we cannot just survive even the hardest of circumstances and what may seem like the most hopeless of circumstances, but we can actually thrive in whatever culture we find ourselves in, in, in the most truest sense. And so Daniel chapter 8 shows us in particular that Living as exiles in this world, um, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, being faithful to Him, but in a culture that may not accept Him by and large, will be hard, and it could even get harder. God's people at times will be persecuted, they'll be socially alienated uh, for their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so the book of Daniel was given to us by God Himself to give us perspective and hope. It's written to give us a realism about hardship, especially hardship for following the Lord Jesus, but also hope. It's to help us see that though things may even get worse, God is still in control and we can still thrive. And so Daniel 8 gives us great hope when our future looks fearful. And it answers this question then, what do you do when the future for God's people will get worse? And what do you do when you don't just think that? But you, in, in a sense, know that it will. Some of you may feel that way um, about the future for Christians in our own nation. Right? For a number of years now, it has appeared that our culture is becoming less and less welcoming to Christian beliefs. Some have reasonable concerns about increased social alienation and legal trouble for Christians and Christian institutions and adoption agencies and schools and churches and Christians that serve in other vocations and workplaces. Life is already very hard for many Christians around the world, and there's been a unique time for, for many Christians in America, and it, for a number of years, has looked like things are trending to, toward difficulty for those who would hold fast to Jesus and especially His ethic um, that He calls to live by, but this is nothing new for God's people. Daniel was already living in exile in Babylon in his time, and it was a hard situation, and God revealed to him that things would get worse, much worse, uh, not only near term, but even over the next few hundred years, um, that things would get worse for coming generations. He gave him this, this symbolic vision of future nations and kings who would persecute God's people. And this vision that we're about to read in Daniel 8 literally made him sick. 
as he considered what was coming in the future. Um, he said, it said he was appalled by this vision, but it also does give Daniel and God's people hope. It teaches that God is ultimately in control. He, as we've seen in Daniel, God makes kings to rise and fall. He makes leaders and presidents and rulers to rise and to fall. All the kingdoms of this world will eventually give way to the kingdom of Jesus, the one who died for us, who graciously welcomes sinners to himself, and he'll bring his kingdom of truth and justice and peace in its fullness one day. So we need this message today because this shows us how to trust God when we think things may even get worse for God's people. And this text shows us how to respond to that. So this is a message we need. So let's read Daniel chapter 8 together and let's pray for the Lord's help first. Our Father, we come to you to hear your word and we pray that you would give us understanding of, in many ways, a confusing vision to us. We pray that you would open our hearts to respond appropriately to this. We pray that you would have your transforming work happen in our, our minds and our hearts and our wills in this time, and that we'd leave here lighter and happier, though also with a proper weight and sobriety about the future. So we pray that you would give us the rest that we need in coming to you through Jesus. Amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 8, let's read it together, then we'll consider it. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, 
for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, verse 15, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me to stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the, the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached, transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Well, there are three images in this vision, and this vision is what we call apocalyptic vision. So this is um, a vision of the future given in symbols. So we're not expecting goats and rams to actually rise, but these are symbols, and the interpretation is even given later in the chapter. So uh, we will get some clarity on some big picture details here, um, but there are things that we may not understand right away. Daniel himself at the end said he was appalled and he didn't understand it, so um, we can focus on the main things certainly here. And kids, if you're drawing this, I would love to see what you draw as you draw what you hear in this vision and note what it is that you're drawing. I'd love to see it. Thank you for showing me when you do this. So the three images are primarily here are a ram, a goat, and then a horn. It's a little horn, but then it grows big. So we'll consider each of those and then consider how to respond. So the ram, the goat, and the horn, and then how do we respond to all of this? So first, the ram. This is the second vision that Daniel's received, the first one we looked at the last couple of weeks in Daniel chapter 7, in that one, just to review, we saw four beasts, and they represented four kingdoms. The first kingdom was Babylon, the kingdom that Daniel was living within as he received the vision. The next kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast represented Greece, the kingdom of the Greeks. And then the fourth kingdom, likely the Roman Empire. And so this is a great vision that Daniel saw, and he saw that these kingdoms would come one after another, and eventually the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ would come, referred to as the Son of Man. Um, this divine human figure came to rescue God's people, and Jesus himself referred to this chapter um, in his ministry 
um, because he is the great king who establishes his kingdom. He's already reigning now, but before he took his throne, he died on the cross for us so that we might be forgiven and enter into his kingdom by grace. And many of us have entered into that kingdom. Our hope is that all uh, would hear and the Lord would bring many into that kingdom even today um, across the globe. And so that's the vision. And so now Daniel sees a second vision that we just read. This is three years later that he's received this one. And in this vision, he's taken to Susa. Now this was in um, where we think of as southwest Iran. It was 200 miles east of Babylon, where he was. So this is the location of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire will be this next empire to rise up in power on the world stage um, after Babylon. And so really what's happening here is in Daniel chapter 7, we saw four kingdoms coming before the kingdom of God would come. Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And what this vision is, is really zooming in to the second and third of those beasts and giving a new image for them, that of a ram and a goat. And so Daniel is taken in his, in his vision over to Babylon. So he's not literally taken there. It's in his vision. He's taken there, or over to Persia, the Persian Empire. And then he sees a ram, verse 3. You can see it with me. I raised my eyes and I saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And this ram had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than another. So we've been seeing this as a symbolic vision. The animals uh, often represent kingdoms, and horns typically represent power um, or a king. And so here is this animal representing a kingdom, and he has horns. And we don't have to guess what kingdom this ram represents, because if you look down at verse 20, Gabriel, the angel, tells Daniel what this represents. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns... These are the kings of Media and Persia. So this ram represents this next kingdom that's going to come on the world stage. You can read about it in all sorts of historical records, um, this Medo-Persian empire. And this ram had two horns that were high, and they represent the kings, and one was higher than another. You may remember the last couple of weeks, the beast that was given in Daniel 7 to represent this kingdom was a bear that was lopsided. One side was higher than the other. Um, and that most likely represents the fact that the Persian part of this Medo-Persian empire was stronger. So one horn is stronger here. And this ram starts running in three directions, north, west, and south. And that makes sense when you think about it, because remember, Daniel is taken to the east, 200 miles to the east, to Persia. Persia was in the east. And so this eastern nation was going to run north and west and south, conquering as he went. And they did that. It came to the, to the place where Daniel then was to Babylon and conquered it. It became the world empire of the time. So now let's move to the next image, which is a goat. Now, what does a goat, the goat represent? Who is the goat? We ask that question a lot these days. Who's the goat, right? Thinking about basketball, greatest of all time. And so we get the answer in Daniel chapter 8. Who is the goat, LeBron or Jordan? Um... Okay, this is not going to settle debate because it's a different goat, but that's okay. We know the answer to that question anyways. Clearly, Michael Jordan, take it up with me later. You're welcome. But who is the goat in this vision? Verse 21 tells us it's the king of Greece, and the horn between its eyes is the first king. So this is the next empire that rises to power after the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the Greek Empire. And it rose to power, and this goat has one great horn coming up, and that's the first king. 
So those of you who are familiar with, with history and what happened at this time, you can probably think of who this great king was in the Greek empires, Alexander the Great. He ruled over what's now Iran and Iraq and Syria and Egypt and parts of China, conquering the known world. Um, but this great horn then uh, eventually was broken. But before this horn was broken, I mean, he conquered the Near East in three years. He did it by the time he was 26 years old. Um, the, the kingdom spread incredibly quickly. This was represented in chapter 7 as this leopard with wings, um, just flying all over the place, conquering. But this great horn was broken. Alexander died. It was the year uh, 323 BC, so he rose to power. He conquered the world, but then he got sick and he died. And this happened by the time he was 33 years old. Uh, for those of you who have made it past 33, what have you done by the time you were 33? And notice what happened to the goat in verse 8. The goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So after Alexander died, he didn't appoint an heir. Instead, he left the kingdom to whom he said, whoever's the strongest so he essentially said, whoever's strongest can rule in my place. Go figure it out. So you can imagine the kind of conflict that would come from a moment like that, right? You think that this past week was bad in trying to figure out a new leader. Could you imagine uh, what it was like here? And this ended up uh, leading the kingdom to be divided. Four of Alexander's generals each got part of the kingdom the four generals here, or the four horns here, the kingdom of Greece was divided into four parts. So now let's move to this last horn. So the ram is the Medo-Persian empire, which then is replaced by this goat, which is the Greek empire and Alexander the Great. And now another horn rises. And this last horn is the main focus of this chapter. Verse 9. Out of one of them, so out of one of the four horns, so one of these kingdoms that was divided within the Greek kingdom, there came a little horn, which then grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Glorious land being the land of Israel. There's almost no debate um, which king in history this refers to. Um, it refers to Antiochus IV, Antiochus, as he called himself, Epiphanes. He ruled the Seleucid Empire for about 10 years in the second century BC. So this is modern day Syria. And he gave himself that name, Epiphanes, means something like illustrious one. Uh, coupled with the word God, which he seemed to do, would be God manifest. So a very humble man. Um, no, he was incredibly arrogant and incredibly ruthless. And he persecuted the Jewish people terribly. In verse 10, it says that... that he threw down stars from heaven and trampled on them. The angel interprets that later to Daniel to say this is his persecution of the Jewish people. So God gave Daniel this vision several hundred years before it took place. But now we have historical records that give us more detail about what happened and confirms this, by the way. The details um, that ended up coming about are um, correspond so closely with historical reality that many people have looked at Daniel and thought Daniel couldn't have predicted this. Um, 
it's, it's just too accurate. So that Daniel must have actually been written in the second century after these things, second century BC, after these things happened. Um, but, you know, as a side note, uh, we recognize that Daniel couldn't have predicted it with accuracy, but God could, right? And so Daniel isn't claiming to have some kind of knowledge here. As he said earlier, he said, there is a God in heaven and he can make known uh, to men. So the Lord is the Lord of history and he graciously tells Daniel what's going to happen in these coming years. And so the book of Maccabees uh, describes what he did as a historical record. And I'm not going to read the details of what Antiochus did because it, it's not PG. He was ruthless and he was an ancient Hitler. He wanted to spread Greek culture everywhere and the Jewish people were resistant to this. And so he had tens of thousands of them ruthlessly killed. And then he defied God. That, these notes here in this chapter about this horn, even going against the, the prince of the host and the prince of princes, likely referring to God himself, setting himself against God. Look at the description in verse 11 then, how he also messed with the Jewish temple and sacrifices, which is a way of defying God. It says this, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, the, the prince, the God, and the, the, prince of, the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with the burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground. Verse 13, it refers to him creating the transgression that makes desolate. So these are acts that Antiochus did in the temple. Um, so at Daniel's time, the temple was destroyed. Uh, so Daniel's getting a vision of the future when the temple actually would be rebuilt. God's people would be back in the land, which would be good news for Daniel to find out what happened. Uh, but now he's actually taken to find out what will happen negatively uh, in the future about this. And so this transgression that makes it desolate, um, in verse 13, this refers to a sinful act, a transgression that led to the temple being desolate. Basically what Antiochus did, uh, he did several things, one of which is he had a pig sacrificed in the temple. So that would have been for the Jewish people, an unclean animal they didn't even eat. So they, he sacrificed it in the temple. Um, and then he had an altar set up to Zeus inside. And so here's idolatry. So he, he functionally uh, set, uh, shut down the temple. And so he made it desolate. No one would go in there. That's why it's called this transgression that makes desolate. It was a sin that caused the temple to be emptied. And it would later be referred to as the abomination of desolation. Maybe you've heard that before. So this abomination, this horrible act that caused this desolation to happen in God's temple. So in verse 13, we hear someone ask, how long will this last? And the answer is that it'll last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there's a few different views on exactly what that number could refer to, either referring to that many days or that many evening and morning sacrifices or maybe a symbolic number. The main point is that the time is limited. Uh, the suffering would come to an end, and it did. In 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion against Antiochus, and he recaptured Jerusalem. They were able to reconstitute the temple and rebuild the altar, and the Jewish people now celebrate that with Hanukkah. And so an important celebration historically uh, for the Jewish people there. So that's the vision. Now, what's the response to this? What do we do with this? Well, the last couple verses point in the direction of a few responses, because this isn't here for just historical curiosities. So first, this leads us to trust the Lord 
as the sovereign ruler over all things. God is the one who brought Antiochus down. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, and he shall even rise up, Antiochus shall rise up against the prince of princes, which I think is referring to God here, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. That phrase, by no human hand, is used elsewhere in Daniel to refer to what God alone does. When no human hand's doing what ultimately God alone is doing. So he rises up against God in defiance and God breaks him down. All throughout the book of Daniel, God knows the future because he controls the future. Nothing happens in the world apart from God's permission and will. If God allows it to happen, he could stop it from happen, happening and he allows it for his good and wise purposes, often mysterious to us though they may be. And so he, even here it says, the very end, that God brought down Antiochus. God is in charge of human history. And we need this reminder today. As nations rise and fall and create a sense of instability in the world, our nation itself being in the midst of a change in leadership, likely, and no matter how any election goes, whether this one or another one in four years or beyond that, we always need to remember this. And so listen to Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 20, 21 again. This is how we as Christians pray during an election season, no matter how it turns out. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. The Lord himself, for his purposes, removes leaders, and he sets up leaders. And so we say, blessed be his name. He does whatever he wants in the world, and we trust in him. So here's the way it's put in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. I saw one of our members post this online just a few days ago, and it's such a great encouragement to us in times like this. So here's question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Answer. So, in other words, um, what advantage is, us, is it for us to know, Daniel 2, 20 to 21, that the Lord is in charge of history? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us or come to us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures, creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Everything is in the Lord's hand. And so we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father because nothing can separate us from his love, which we have through Jesus. Second, this text encourages us to prepare ourselves for suffering as Christians. Through this vision, God is preparing his people for persecution. Daniel received this just a few years before is many of the Jewish people would return to the land. And so that may have felt like the exile would be over, right? Just a few years from now, from when Daniel received this, they'd be able to return home. Many felt like no doubt their suffering was over, but God was telling them through Daniel, it's actually going to get worse. Antiochus, this ruler that's coming, will rule ruthlessly, and 
God's people needed to know that to be prepared. And even though this is now past to us, right, second century BC, this is still relevant to us because the New Testament, in the New Testament, we learn that Antiochus, this ruthless leader we have considered here, he's actually a pattern in history. He's not just a one-off ruler. He becomes a pattern. His kind of persecution against God's people would be repeated over and over. And it was repeated. It was repeated in AD 70. Jesus himself was preparing his followers for that in his own life and ministry. So in Matthew 24, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus refers to an abomination of desolation that will be set up in the temple again. So Antiochus had done that uh, about 200 years before Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is telling his followers to be forewarned, and he said this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that did happen. Within a generation, as Jesus said it would, in AD 70, the Roman army overtook Jerusalem, many people died, and they did defile the temple again. Uh, So, Antiochus then, what he did, would be repeated, and Jesus warned his Christian Jewish followers of what would happen. The Apostle Paul indicates that it will happen yet again in a sense. He warns about a coming Antichrist who will do, or man of lawlessness, who will do many similar things to God's people near the end, and Jesus will return to bring him to an end. So here's the point. God warns Daniel about coming persecution, and it's a pattern that repeats itself in history against God's people. Rulers come to power and persecute God's people. Power is very dangerous in the hands of sinners, right? Um, in, among nations, among families and homes, among all sorts of group, groups, power is a blessing to serve with, but it can be dangerous as well in the hands of sinners. And so it's a warning. And so we need to embrace this. We need to anticipate it. We need to prepare for it. We need to be strengthened in faith so that we can endure it faithfully. And so one way to do this, by the way, just one of many, in addition to taking this kind of text seriously, would be to read Christian biographies of men and women who have suffered faithfully before us. And as we mentioned last week, to be aware of the suffering that many faithful Christians are enduring right now. So current persecution, I encourage you to go to um, Voice of the Martyrs website and Open Doors website and be aware and praying for our brothers and sisters, but even just Christian biographies of men and women before. So we have some of them put out on the table in the resource corner that you can pick up. And I encourage you to make a regular habit of reading about faithful Christians who have gone before Um, And they invariably, typically experience great suffering and are encouragement through that. Third way to respond, let's be appalled at human evil and persecution. Look at Daniel's response here in verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. He was appalled by this vision. So as Christians, we prepare for suffering and social alienation and persecution, but we do not celebrate it. We don't ask for it. We do not delight in suffering. We, we do not invite it. It is an expression of human evil. Now, we receive it from God's hand, and God has good purposes for it. And throughout history, it purifies God's people. We receive that. 
Um, we know that though our outer way, nature's wasting away, our inner nature can be renewed, and it causes resilience in God's people. It can cause the gospel to spread. But, but what we do pray for is what we should be praying for even this week as a nation is for our leaders, as Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 2, um, to rule in such a way that we as God's people can live peaceful and quiet lives so the gospel can spread. We don't ask for persecution. The Lord may send it. But when it's there, we're appalled by it because it is evil. It is against God and his people. And so when we learn of any human evil, we should be appalled by it. When we, when we consider evil like the Holocaust or what's happening to the Uyghur people in China right now or what our own nation does to children unborn in the womb or what our own nation has done in the past with slavery it should make us feel sick. And some of you may be fearful of what may happen in coming years or decades or generations in America. You may feel like Daniel did at first. As you get glimpses of trajectories that you think may head in very dangerous places, you feel sick in your stomach. Um, that's a proper response. And it's also a reminder then that the evil is not just out there, it's in here. Because uh, we are all cut from the same cloth, stained with sin. It's in our own hearts. We're capable of terrible evil. And so when we see evil, it should humble us. Because it was, if it was not for God's grace to restrain us and his saving grace to forgive us and give us a new heart, we, would be, we are capable of uh, incredible evil. Our, our hearts are unhinged apart from him. But fourth, here's another way to respond. Though we are appalled and maybe even feel sick about what we see might happen, we serve for the good of the culture and society that we're in. Look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then what did he do? Then I rose and went about the king's business. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. I don't know that that's given to us as an example. I, I sense that it is because that's so fitting with the way that God's people respond uh, in faithful ways in hardship. So Daniel's appalled by what he sees in the coming future, but he doesn't let the anxiety paralyze him. Um, he doesn't turn hostile. He doesn't do what Hezekiah did uh, when he heard about trouble coming in the future. He kind of just said, well, I guess it's not going to happen in my generation, so that's fine. No, he's sick to his stomach, but he then goes to work and he keeps serving, serving even the king, this pagan king that he's serving in Babylon there. So that's how God calls us to live. Daniel was no doubt alienated in his culture, but he serves faithfully there. So what do Christians do when they're in a culture that seems to be getting dark around them? What do Christians do when they think things may even get worse for Christians? Um, well, we get up and we keep serving. We care for our neighbors. We, if you have children, raise your children or grandchildren to know the Lord. You serve friends faithfully. You work in your vocations with excellence. You serve in public office to bless your communities. We serve, as Jesus put it, salt and light in our communities. Final way to respond. Let's keep our hope fixed on Jesus. This is really the central key to thriving as exiles. Remember the context here from chapter 7. Daniel received this vision of these four kingdoms. Uh, the second and third we've considered this morning is four kingdoms that would come and go, and then the kingdom of Jesus would come. And that's the key. The other kingdoms come and go. Leaders rise and they fall. 
under God's sovereign hand. And then eventually everything gives way to the gracious rule of Jesus in a kingdom of justice and peace. So this is a great hope that all of God's people have on the horizon. No matter how hard it gets, it will get better. Jesus will return. So think about it. Every kingdom rises and falls, but only Jesus will rise or will reign forever. Alexander the Great, he rose to power and fame, and then he died at 33. Antiochus Epiphanes, calling himself the illustrious one. How many of you had heard of him before coming here this morning? Maybe some. Um, Other people rising and falling. Presidents rise and fall. Kings of other nations rise and fall. Jesus reigns forever. And only him. And only he's worthy of our attention to be fixed on. And so, you know, I don't know how many more elections will come and go in my lifetime, but they will come and they will go. And Jesus will reign forever. And he welcomes us into his kingdom by faith. And so we trust him. And so in a cultural season where people are very divided, um, where people are tempted to see others as enemies, uh, as God's people, we know we are deeply loved by the Lord Jesus, though we were his enemies. And so we receive that love, we rest in that love, and then we reflect that love to others even if they appear to be in some sort of place of viewing us or as an enemy or being divided. So let's keep our hope fixed on Jesus' kingdom and Jesus himself, and let that change our hearts and our tones uh, to be light in this culture. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful that you don't leave us in the mess of this world without hope. And so we are humbled by our sin. We are appalled at evil. We're grateful for your grace. And all of this by your Spirit, we're also given hope. And so we pray that you would give us deep hope so that we could rise and serve in our society and communities and neighborhoods and families in these coming days. In Jesus' name.